0: All right, it's great to hear from from, uh, Brian and Beth. Uh, Dear friends, Brian's become uh, someone I've been connecting with over the Marco Polo app, so some of the kids out there know how cool that is. Um, We talk about uh, Marcus Aurelius' meditation. It's not really cool, but still fun. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eteria, and Trachonitis, and Lucanius, tetrarch of Abilene, or Abilene, if you want to mispronounce that like a Texan, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. It's a lot of big words that describe a lot of important people. Uh, These people that are listed were some of the most powerful people, not only in their area, but in the world. Uh, Tiberius Caesar inherits the emperor's throne from Augustus, probably the most powerful man on earth at the time. Pontius Pilate. Uh, We know his story. He comes back in around Easter. Uh, Herod, this isn't Herod the Great, the one that we know from the Christmas story. This is actually his son and his brother Philip, the not so great. Um, And Licinius, you don't really need to know Licinius' story. Uh, They are the the Tetrarchs, which uh, when, when Herod died, they divide the kingdom into four different kingdoms, and these guys are all running it, and it's just a circus. And then Annas and Caiaphas, you you hear these names because they're the religious leaders uh, in the time of Jesus. And they are important. They throw their weight around. Um, Everything kind of goes through them. And this is a list of power people. These are the power players. Uh, We have a men's group that meets Thursday nights on Zoom, and we've been going through Luke this fall. We came up to this passage this week. It's taken us quite some time to get to chapter 3. but we're talking about it, and we're like, why does Luke list all of these people? Because, uh, you know, he's, he's already talked about, like, the Christmas story and who's in charge, and he kind of starts over with more people that are in charge. It's like name after name after name. But what's interesting is when you hear all of these power players in this story, in the world at this time, Luke does this little thing where he says in verse 2, after listing all of these powerful people, that the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We know this is John the Baptist. If you know the Luke story, uh, his uh, birth was, was foretold to his parents. And Elizabeth and Zechariah, this is Jesus' cousin. And the word of God comes to John. It doesn't go to these power players. It doesn't go to to. Tiberius Caesar or Pontius Pilate or Herod doesn't even go to Caiaphas and and the priests that that should be having the word of God. It bypasses all of them and it comes to John in the wilderness. There's something about how God works and when Jesus comes onto the scene and how God's communicating. I don't know if he tried to go to those other people and they weren't available or what, but the word comes to an unexpected person in an unexpected place that the Messiah is on the move. Unexpected person gets this message in this unexpected place, the desert, the wilderness, the wasteland, not probably somewhere that you would expect, like a temple or church, out in the wilderness. This Christmas story, the Advent season, uh, it requires this uh, certain element of waiting and anticipating and having a heightened sensitivity to what God is doing. And when we think about the year that we have just gone through, with all of the hard things that have happened, it's possible that things are being maybe stripped away from us. Uh, we're being disoriented. Uh, we've gone through painful experiences so that uh, God is, is about to do something in our lives, in our community, in our church. Maybe there's a, a, a new openness of, of returning to him with a sensitivity to receive what he has. Advent requires a... a Awaiting anticipation for God to arrive. And in this story, it comes to John, who's out in the wilderness, waiting to hear from God. Verse 3 goes on to tell us what that word is. John uh, gets ready to speak. It says, He went to all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, he, he quotes this verse. He says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley will be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. So John receives this word from God, and he starts to proclaim it, and he starts to proclaim this message that he actually draws from Scripture, draws from the Old Testament. Um, and you might read that and you think, that's nice, he's quoting scripture. Uh, you know, give him a sticker for a Sunday school chart. I don't like, it's just easy to think, like, oh, they're always quoting scripture. But there's something, I think, unique about this certain scripture. And not just because it's an Old Testament prophet that is, that is, you know, anticipating the Messiah, but there's something that happens in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a unique place for him to start with this proclamation. Because the book of Isaiah, this. Old Testament prophet, one of the major prophets, uh, if, you, if you know the structure of Isaiah, there's really three sections of it, and the first section, chapters 1 through 39, has a certain message uh, that meets the people who are God's people who are about to be conquered and pulled into exile into Babylon, and there's all sorts of blame, there's all sorts of pointing fingers and anger at God. Uh, there's questions about, like, why would God allow this to happen? Uh, there's this sense of defeat and bitterness and abandonment, and they're just weary. And, and then the tone changes in Isaiah 40. Some would say it's, it's almost like a new book. We, we're not sure if it hundreds of years had passed, but it seems like they're, all of a sudden they're looking forward to the future again. And Isaiah starts to have this message of hope in the midst of the weariness of, of what the people of God are going through. There's a different emphasis. This is the, the, the whole book pivots on this chapter, and all of a sudden they're looking forward and anticipating God, the Messiah, coming and making a change in their life. They're anticipating deliverance. And when, I, when John decides to quote Isaiah, he starts in Isaiah 40. In fact, if you look at the beginning of this chapter, uh, it starts with these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Now, we read that on this side of history and this side of the cross. When you're receiving this as as Isaiah's original recipients, these words, comfort, comfort, comfort. My people. This is a message of comfort. After everything that they've gone through, those first 39 chapters of Isaiah and in their history and in exile, this is a new message and it's about comfort. Be comforted. When they are talking about the anticipation of the Messiah, to be comforted. There's a gentleness to God's presence. In fact, Romans uh, talks about how it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that, that draws us into relationship with God. There's a gentleness and a comfort that comes. Uh, th- this is a, a metaphorical uh, use of, of this word. If you look at the literal, it means, this is what the word comfort means. Is it means to, to breathe deeply, to sigh, to slow down, breathing. There's all sorts of work that's being done right now on breathing therapy and how that is able to calm us, how how good oxygen is for us, and how we move so quickly. We uh, found out our son uh, Micah has had to have some dental work done. Uh, we didn't realize this, but like I guess like the way his mouth and his throat formed, um, he had to have like dental work to open it up because he like wasn't getting enough oxygen to the brain, which is you know going to be the source of a lot of teasing and jokes as he gets older. Um, but, but had this work done to open up his throat so he could breathe more, so he could get more air, more oxygen. He was, he was antsy. He was always like, could it be patient? And, and what we found out is there's a breathing therapy that actually allows him to slow down, to not be anxious. Breathing is something that is comforting. And this message is for God's people, comfort, breathe, take a deep breath, slow down. In the midst of everything that's happened this year for 2020, I don't know how much of us have just been able to stop and to breathe deeply. And to so breathe uh, breathe in knowing that this is God's presence that is with us. Maybe today you just need to stop and breathe. Intentional breathing. I don't know what you want to call it. For you counselors out there, don't yell at me. Be comforted. Breathe deep. And here's why. There's, there's three promises of of what the Messiah is going to do in this passage. Be comforted. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice calling of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert the highway for our God. Be comforted because this, the king is on his way. The king is on his way. God is on his move. Prepare for it. God's about to do something. He's about to to intervene. He's about to work. The king is on the way. There's hope For the future, what is ahead of us is better than what lies behind us. What our present moment is isn't isn't the future. What our present moment is is just uh, temporary. Something is happening. God is on his way. Prepare for the Messiah. Advent is this holy anticipation of God's incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. There's an old pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I quote all the time. I think he lives in a fascinating time in history during World War II. As Hitler and the Nazis were rising to power, he was trying to figure out how to pastor the church, and um, there's all sorts of situational ethics that, that come into to play. Eventually, what happens is he ends up getting arrested for his beliefs and for his criticism of Hitler. He gets thrown into prison. Some of his best work that's remembered is, is written from prison cell, and so. He misses out on his close friend's wedding, writes this beautiful wedding sermon that I typically quote at weddings, uh, but also writes about Advent and Christmas, and, and to, to, to be in prison in this prison cell, uh, this jail cell for Christmas, uh, hits a little bit differently, if, if you can imagine what he's going through, but he talks about what he's experiencing in this jail cell every time someone opens the door. It's like this outside world, and, and he's in this dark like dungeon, literally, jail cell. And, and every now and then someone will open up the door and light comes in and, and someone brings food or a message to him. And he's just waiting for that, staring at door, hoping for the door to open. And he starts to have this understanding of this is what Advent is, this waiting. It says, life in prison, in a prison cell, may be compared to Advent. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. We think about this world that we live in, this world that is full of suffering, uh, being reminded that God breaks through into this world in the carnation, incarnation. Jesus comes as a child. It's like he's opening this door that can only be opened from the outside. The king is on the way. Prepare for it. We live with this holy anticipation of God intervening in our life. Isaiah 40 Verse four goes on to say this, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places plain. You hear that and you're like, well, that's interesting that that's a description of what God's going to do because that sounds boring. Like, I love the mountains. I love the valleys. We live in the valley. We live, like, why are you going to flatten that? Uh, I got to go to Japan about 10 years ago. My sister was living there as a missionary. They were doing this fascinating thing. It was so overpopulated that they were tearing down mountains and building islands out of the mountains. So then people could live where the mountains were and live on the islands. In fact, the airport in Osaka was a man-made island and it was literally like sinking. They were like trying to figure out what to do about it. I guess, I don't know what, maybe it sunk, I don't know what they did about it, but this airport was sinking and and they were like leveling, they're trying to create more land for people to live, making the island uh, more livable. I don't think that's what's going on here. But there's this interesting language that's being used. And I think what's happening is this is the language of metaphor. That there's a spiritual topography that's changing. An upheaval that resets this new landscape that comes with, with the Messiah. And in Isaiah, they're anticipating that, that what we see, what we look at and what we see, all of this is shifting. All of this is going to change. God's on the move. There's things that are, are happening and changing. We see that in the life of Jesus. It's like they're saying that the lifting and the lowering and the leveling and the smoothing are necessary for the kingdom of God. In the work of Jesus, you see this, this type of stuff happening. Jesus is healing the sick. He's feeding the hungry. He's meeting the poor. He's bringing a sight for the blind, water for the thirsty the point where the dead are being raised. There's this upheaval that resets this landscape, this spiritual landscape that we are navigating. God will accomplish his purpose is what this is talking about. The will of God is happening when, when God is with us. This gives mission for the church. The work that Jesus is doing is something that the church takes on, being the hands and feet of Jesus All of the different acts, whether it's acts of worship, acts of service, acts of mission, is participating in restructuring this landscape. Carl F. Henry says this um, when it comes to Advent and, and Christmas and Jesus coming. When it comes to us looking around at the landscape, it says, The early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. The Messiah, Jesus. This has always been the message that we don't look around and think, oh, what is this world coming to? No, we're a part of this renewal and redemption project that God is putting things back together. God is bringing about healing. God is inviting us into this story. God is on the move. Isaiah 40 verse 5 goes on to say this, The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a third promise that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. The king is coming. He's he's drawing near. To prepare for it. He's accomplishing his purposes and all of this is for his glory. Glory is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's the word kibod. It's fun to say. Actually, he's talking about a weight But when we think about the glory of God, this is being revealed through the work of what he's doing through Jesus, the work of what's happening with the church. All of this is bringing God glory. John Piper is a great author that talks about the glory of God and his passion, supremacy of God. He says these words, and and oftentimes I find myself, uh, yeah, here. It says, in the church, our view of God is so small instead of huge, so marginal instead of crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of determining, and so uninspiring instead of ravishing, that the responsibility to live to the glory of God is thought without content. The words can come out of our mouths, but ask the average Christian to tell you what they know about the glory of this God and what they are going to live for. And the answer will not usually be long. It's so true when we think about the glory of God, the majesty of God, the weight of his glory. We talk about the glory of God throughout scripture, you hear different phrases, this fiery radiance of his very nature. It's a blazing beauty. At Mount Sinai, the appearance of the Lord was like this consuming, devouring fire. It was wild. It was beautiful. Ezekiel talks about the glory of God. Uh, He says that it's like uh, some form of supercharged war chariot coming down from heaven, which sounds like you know, he's having dinner with Will Ferrell trying to describe what God is like, a supercharged chariot coming down from heaven, the rule on earth. Um, You know, Jesus, when he's born, talks about the glory of God with the shepherds. They experience this, the angelic hosts come. They see the glory. Uh, John, as he talks about the incarnation, that Jesus himself is the ultimate display of the glory of God. We see that in his life. We have the story of the transfiguration where the glory of God is unveiled in front of some of the disciples John 13, 31, Jesus actually says, it's time for me to be glorified. And he's talking about the cross. The cross where Jesus hangs and has died in shame. We're seeing the glory of God, which means that this glory of God, the the ultimate expression of what we see in Jesus' ultimate act, it's this unconditional love for us. This unconditional, unadulterated love that pursues us we see that on the cross. We see that in Philippians chapter two, where it talks about having the same attitude as this Jesus, who makes himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being obedient to death, death on the cross, and that God exalts him to the highest places. All of this is for the glory of God. The king is on the way. His purposes are being accomplished. All of this is for His glory. This beautiful story of the Incarnation. The glory for the glory of God. Why do we rejoice? In the midst of our wilderness experiences, in the midst of our exile experiences, all of the suffering, our current condition is not our final condition. We are a part of the story that is eternal, a part of the story where God is intervening and working on our behalf and inviting us to work with him. I love when you read through Isaiah 40 and you continue this. These are the words... That John the Baptist quotes in Luke 3. But as John pivots or as Isaiah pivots in his story, in Isaiah 40, he's talking about being comforted because the king is coming, and the king is working his accomplish, to accomplish his will. Uh, it's all for his glory. And then he goes on to say this in verse 21: says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? And hear these words: Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told? You from the beginning, have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above in the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one, who calls forth each of them by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, no way, My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases power to the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I love this passage. What a powerful passage. I like to think that it's a Christmas passage. That those who are weary, that God will renew their strength. The story of Christmas is God coming into the world, into a weary world. Whether it's this time of Isaiah where they've lost everything, they're living in exile and they're looking forward to the Messiah, the time of Jesus when you have all these powerful and corrupt rulers ruling the land, God is always at work. And in the midst of 2020 and the weariness that we all feel this year, we rejoice not because of our present circumstances, but because God's working on our present circumstances and because of this hope that we have in the future that the King is on the move accomplishing his purposes for his glory. Be comforted by this message of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. And time and time again, we we see you intervene in history with people that are suffering, people who are tired and weary, people who are hurting, people who have uncertain futures. We know we're a part of this story where you are with us in the midst of all of that, where you are sovereign. We keep celebrating this incarnation where you you came and we also look forward to your return. which allows us to be people of hope. And on this Christmas, Lord, with the the world as weary as it is, we wanna rejoice in our hope in you, that you would renew our strength, that you would meet us today, and that we'd be comforted by these promises. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.